be really helpful this evening to follow along with me. The, the longer the passage, the, the easier it is maybe for you to, to stay with me and to look at the verses that I might be, be talking about as well. But as we begin this study in Isaiah, it's important, I think, for a little while that we rewind into Israel's history. Moses, as he led the people out and as God commanded Moses, God told the people that if they were to experience God's blessing, they were to be obedient to God. They were to worship God as the one true God, the one who rescued them out of Egypt. But we know, don't we, in this Old Testament, for those of us who are really familiar, Israel constantly forget about that rescue, don't they? They build a calf a few weeks in. But then they get into the promised land and it starts off good. But then we have the whole book of Judges, don't we? Where they worship God for a little while and then they forget. And they take all these different pieces from the nations around them. And God has to send a judge to rescue them. To, to tell them to, to go back to worshipping him. And they would experience blessing. And they do and they receive peace. If they aren't worshipping the Lord. If they're not living as God's people, they are cursed. They are enslaved more often than not in the Old Testament. But here for, for Isaiah, as he speaks, he speaks in a time which is really complicated that Israel is the northern kingdom and there's Judah in the south. And Isaiah is the prophet in Judah. Israel in the northern kingdom, it's been taken away by the Assyrians. And constantly God warns the southern kingdom, Judah, to not go the way of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he threatens them that the Assyrians will come and take them away. So think of Nahum perhaps as well. But we know it's not Assyria that will conquer the southern kingdom Judah. We know it's Babylon and we'll discover that as we work our way on. But the people of Judah in the southern kingdom, we get a hint of it I think in, in verses, oh, it talks about verse 23 that the, what the people are like, the princes are rebels. Everyone loves a bribe. Everyone likes the wee brown envelope out the sides. But there's no justice for the fatherless, the orphans and the widows. Those who are the most vulnerable in society are forgotten about. They're not looked after at all. They worship other gods as well as we discover in this. The elite are oppressing the poor. And when they get into bother, they don't look to God for help. But they actually look to other nations as we'll see in the weeks to come. So here Isaiah is God sends the prophet Isaiah whenever King Uzziah dies. 640 years before Jesus comes. And Isaiah has a long ministry of people not listening to him. 50 years in length. And what happens in these years, Judah watches anxiously over her shoulder as Assyria seeks to conquer the land and Jerusalem. These are the 50 years full of oppression, plenty of sin and a lack of repentance. Isaiah is a very large book of the Bible. It's not just many pages, but it's really large in scope as well, isn't it? Look at verse 2. Who, what is this all about? Who do, who's Israel? God speak through Isaiah? He says, hear, O heavens, O earth. It's, it's for everybody to hear this. And then the penultimate verse, Isaiah says, that there's a new heavens and new earth that I will make endure before me. So this is, yes, it's for the people living in Jerusalem. 
But there's this whole cosmic picture from beginning to end that this is about a new heavens and a new earth to come. That God's plan of redemption is going to be working its way through here. And I think all of us picked up verse 18, haven't we? (laughs) Already, which we'll get to. It's massive in its scale. It's massive in its prophecy because it has the whole of eternity in view. And we've called this a holy God saves. Why? Well, constantly we see God's holiness. Chapter 6, Isaiah says, woe is me. You know that, that story really well. But constantly we see God's rejection of what's unclean and unholy. And it's what's going on in the, the, the time of Jerusalem. But it's about a holy God saves. This book is full of prophecy, isn't it? We read it all, all the time at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That there's going to be one that's going to come. That's going to bring this promise of King David. An eternal one on the throne. That's going to bring a new heavens and new earth. Because chapter 1 is a really good reflection of the first 39 chapters. There have, we have read a lot of God's judgment that he's going to bring but also a lot of his grace and the hope that there is for those who turn and repent. So that's what chapters 1 to 39 are a little bit like. Chapters 40 to the end is full of those famous passages, the suffering servant. Isaiah 43, even though I pass through the waters, there's always these wonderful promises of hope in the second half of Isaiah. But it's, a holy, it's about a holy God who saves. Why? Well, because that's what Isaiah's name means. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. Where I went to the Queens, one of my friends got a nickname from, from Bally Clare Boys that he, he was called Mini Squish because his brother was called Squishy in Bally Clare High School. Why? Well, his older brother, who's three or four years older, on his very first day at Bally Clare High School, left school. He's okay. He walked out onto the road and was hit by a car. And the story was in the sixth formers then, so he's very small, was that he bounced off the road. And from that moment, it wasn't his love of flumps that gave him the name, but he had that name Squishing or Squish. And it had the whole story in the background that people who knew it instantly had in their mind, whenever they saw him and his name, it had all that background in it as well. So throughout Isaiah, as he interacts with all these people in Jerusalem, everybody is literally saying, the Lord is salvation. They know the whole story. They've ignored it. But with all their problems that they have and that they face, the answer to all of their problems is literally staring them in the face and sometimes even on their very lips. Because what's the answer to their problems? Isaiah. The Lord saves. His name announces and proclaims grace, proclaims to a people who should be turning not away from God, but to him. Not to another world power, but to the one who has power over all things. Because the people in Jerusalem, they like to be in control. They like to be in charge of all their own things. That's why they took their, their bribes and didn't do justice. They, were, they lived a life that was infested with idols, it says here. And we know that's how the world lives and how we live as well. Infested with idols, full of empty promises. But the message again is the Lord is salvation, Isaiah. The people in Isaiah's day saw no relevance 
for the Lord's help. It was in a popular message for the people in Jerusalem. And as we will see their hearts, they were spiritually dead. And isn't that quite similar to how we live in today's world? Where God seems to have no relevance. No answer to any of the world's problems. But as we begin this book, we're not really thinking about the world. Not initially anyway. We'll get to see the world's sins. But Isaiah is sent by God to who? His people. God's chosen people. And as we consider God's word, as we consider this prophecy of Isaiah over these weeks, we must remember not to instantly look outside of us and point to all the sins of the world. But we need to apply God's word to God's people. And that's what we're going to do this evening. So in verses 2 to 9, what do we see? We see rebelling children. Rebelling children. It's a picture that God uses about Israel. And it's a sad and heartbreaking one, isn't it? Sinful nation. The people of Jerusalem who are God's very own children. Who are supposed to act as if they are God's own children are not. Children who were reared and brought up but are now rebelling against him. And some of us will know that all too well, sadly. Maybe a child does something that we really disagree with. And it's hurtful. It's sore, it aches our hearts. So how much more is the case with God and the relationship with his people as he is the Holy One and the Perfect One? He is the loving Father. He will discipline and judge as well. But these rebelling children, what have they done? Well, in verse 4, they turn their backs. They have forsaken, the, they have forsaken God. They despise the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. These are are people who have been brought up knowing what they ought to know, but have ignored it. They turn their back away from God and they walk the complete different direction. They will say things like, well, that was the case in Moses' day. That's not the case for us today. We know better. And throughout this chapter, we're able to pick up their ignorance of the Lord and his ways uh, quite, quite often. But they no longer have a respect. They are distancing themselves from the Lord. They are saying, no, we're rebelling that much. That we're saying we're not God's children anymore at all. And because they have turned their backs away from God, God says they look beaten up. In verses 5 and 6. It's almost as if it's a boxing match and we're watching this in the ring. And we're asking for the, the person in the corner to throw in the white towel. But the boxer keeps getting up looking for more punishment. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the top of your your head to the sole of your foot. There's no soundness. There's no good in it. You're done. You're totally rotten is what the Lord says. Their head is gone. Their hearts are overwhelmed with the damage that they've inflicted upon themselves. And God indicates the devastating state of his people. Like a body without recognition. That's what sin does. Into our heart, it totally changes what we look like. We don't look like God's people anymore. And this is what sin does to the people around us. It makes them beaten into a pulp. It looks like a body beyond recognition. If we fast forward in Isaiah, isn't there another chapter that talks about a body beaten before recognition? A body that had no sin with wounds and bruised. 
If we have a picture of the suffering servant, we have a picture of our Lord Jesus, don't we? Because this is what he has done for us. His head was sick, his heart was faint, from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. There was no soundness, full of bruises and sores because of us. And he did it for us. Oh, it's a bad sinful nation, but aren't our hearts bad and sinful too? And although it looks awful, we might wonder at this point in Israel's history, could it get any worse? And there's only one reason it doesn't get any worse, and that is God's grace. In verse 9, it says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us, the Lord in his grace has left people to, to, to bring about his promises, to share his good news. People like Isaiah, people who are walking faithfully with the Lord, even in the midst of all this sin and turmoil. And he even calls, what does he call Jerusalem? God's holy city, not anymore, Sodom and Gomorrah. Isn't that such a judgment on the people? There, Abraham, in Genesis 18, he pleads for Sodom. Do you remember? Lord, save the city. If there's 50 righteous, then he works his way down to 10. Then the Lord would not destroy it, but the city was destroyed. Here, we don't know how many, but the Lord tells us there's a few. And God uh, doesn't destroy them, doesn't wipe Jerusalem out. But it's only because of his grace that he doesn't. God has identified a people, a remnant of survivors that will escape God's judgment and be with him in righteousness. But even though they look like Sodom and Gomorrah, God says there's still hope for my people. See, even for us living in our world today, as God's people, we feel a little bit like this, don't we? A bit of a a remnant. There's just a, a few of us left, it might feel like. And we see other people doing other things. People who grew up in the church. People who say, well, we have the Protestant faith. But they're walking in sin. They are rebelling children. But here's the grace and the hope, isn't there? You know, the Lord is, is, has not left us a few. There's many of us. And we can encourage one another. But as we do so, we need to look past the world. What do I mean by that? I don't mean quite the next world. But if we look at the world around us, we can lament and grumble and complain about many, many things, from decision-making to policies and organisations. We can point the finger and identify sin in this world. But we ought to look and forget about the world and just look at ourselves as, as a church. We are reminded here throughout Isaiah to look past the, the socioeconomic affairs of the day, Forget about how the the FTSE 100 is doing. Look past government decisions. We are reminded to look past the political, judicial, social factors when we analyse our world. But as we look at our own selves, we need to see the reality of God's verdict on our conduct. For God judges his children in spiritual terms. One commentator says this, and the line's going to come up on the screen. What hinders God's blessing is his own children in rebellion against him. Remember God said to God's people Israel, No, if you follow me and obey me, I will bless you, and if you don't, I curse you. So as we inspect our own hearts, even as we come to the table later, what hinders God's blessing is his own children in rebellion against him. 
See, our natural tendency is to rebellion, not repentance, isn't it? So how is my sin affecting God's blessing in my life or even in our church family? How is your sin hindering God's blessing on us? We don't even recognize sometimes that we are rebelling. Like a man who doesn't know he's beaten up, going back for more. We're a wee bit like that too. We are sometimes rebelling children, but there's still grace for us in Jesus. Rebelling children, verses 10 to 17, rotten worship. Rotten worship. I think maybe one of the best pictures to, to think about in this is imagine it's a nice, nice day like this afternoon. You, you want to bite into a nice crisp apple that's a wee bit cold. And as you're expecting that big crunch and delicious taste of your, your pink lady or your golden delicious, whatever your preference might be, you have to spit it out because it is rotten in the inside. Outside it looked tasty, it looked really good, it looked like there was nothing wrong, but on the outside it's rotten. And that's perhaps the picture that we need to have in our minds as we think about what God's people Israel are doing here. It's a picture what best captures. They're doing all the right things. It looks really good on the outside, but the reality is it's bad. It's rotten. You know, the people are doing right things, aren't they? No, verse 11. No, they're doing their burnt offerings. They're giving the best rams, the well-fed beasts. There seems to be this bustling of religious activity in and around the temple, but in external appearances, all looks well. But the reality is much different. They brought much. Their expense was great. They thought that would fix their issue with the Lord, but the Lord hated the worship. Constantly, the prophets and Jesus himself would say that we're going to worship in spirit and truth. Our, our observance of following the Lord must come from the heart. There needs to be a heart commitment. And the Lord hates what they're doing. He says, look at all these sacrifices. I listen to all your prayers. It might look good. You might bring the very best animals that you have. But I hate it. Verse 12. You know, there's no pleasure in this for me. Verse 13. It's an abomination or it's detestable. It's vain, it's meaningless, it's utterly unbearable to me. Verse 14, my soul hates. Their worship was so distorted that the Lord hated it and rejected it. That their very own prayers were offensive to God. And the Lord hated their worship. See, the, the spiritual aspect of our worship is most important, isn't it? As we gather together, God meets with us in a special way. But when the practice of worship, doing the right things, become more important than our hearts, we're going to have problems, aren't we? Sometimes we don't feel like it, and that's a reality, isn't it? But here they're going over and over again, almost like vain repetitions, just going through the grind to earn some sort of blessing from God. We all know people who are singing, saying, doing all the right things. On the outside, they look like a good apple, but the inside, something different is going on altogether. So we must guard ourselves against this pattern. Not just simply being religious, observing and doing what is good, because that might lead our hearts to grow cold and hard. We cannot come and do the right things on a Sunday and live otherwise through the week. Because that was the, the evidence 
As the people came to worship, the, the fruit of that worship, that false worship, was in the orphan and the widow. As they went helpless. When we are more concerned about what activities we are or are not doing during worship, we're in danger zone. Singing, reading, praying. Our hearts are to be engaged. The attitude of our hearts is imperative. Because the people, although they're worshipping God, they're worshipping other things. And that's what verses 29 to 31 is about. It talks about gardens and oak trees. That's talking about pagan worship and fertility gardens. See, God's people are corrupting themselves to be compared to Sodom. That their hearts were hard and they were cold. That they were continuing to live this life of sin. And for Israel and for his church, a life of sin, being hard-hearted, is a terrible testimony to this world. You must deal with sin properly, not to embrace it and ignore it. And the spiritual aspect of worship is very important. That we walk closely with the Lord, engaging in our prayers and in our singing, establishing patterns of walking closely, because the attitude of our heart in worship overflows into daily life. That's what was missing in their life. And sometimes that's what's missing in ours too. They are to practice their belief in daily life, looking after the vulnerable, but they left them neglected. And verses 21 to 23 show this well that. Israel is no longer the beautiful bride that God has chosen, but a harlot. Not standing true to their covenant commitment to God. There's no characteristic of righteousness but bribes. No concern for the vulnerable but thieves and murderers. And following the Lord, following Jesus, it results in a change in our actions. Whether it be the oppressed and downtrodden of society, the weak and the most vulnerable. For there's countless examples through history of Christians seeking to bring change in that way because of their love of Jesus overflows into their daily life. Whether it be reforming prisons to the slave trade, the education to prisons, so many things. Sometimes our worship can be rotten. Sometimes we are children who love to rebel against God, but there's redemption available. Here, a holy God calls sinners to repent. No more sacrifices. No more worship, no more false worship, but repentance. Verse 18, God says, look at all I've said so far. You're rotten in your worship, you're rebelling children. So let's sit down and consider this. Let's think about this. Let's look at ourselves and yourselves. Your sins are like scarlet. You have blood-stained, guilty hands. You've been caught red-handed. And we have this rotten worship at times in our hearts. We are rebelling children that go our own way. And God says, put your sins away from my sight. The guilty verdict has been really well established, hasn't it? Look at all this that they've been doing. Look at all that we have been doing. It's a vivid picture, this color of blood. This is a crisis. And at any moment, you would expect God to bring judgment to fall like Sodom and Gomorrah. But what does he give? Grace. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow. Wonderful grace. A full pardon. It's not pink. You know, whenever you put a red shirt in with a white shirt in the washing machine. You know, it's, it's clean. It's, it's new. Only through Jesus is our worship ever acceptable. Only through Jesus is there power over all of our sins. Only in Jesus is there a 
hope for our repentance. For the alternative to redemption is destruction that God says there in verse 19 and 20. Isaiah verse 18 is a great promise for us indeed, isn't it? That although our sin has stained our very souls, God will cleanse us completely and we will stand before a holy God as his holy people, not because we're wearing the robes of ourselves, but the robes of Jesus. We must repent and trust in him. We have to agree with the Lord's evaluation of sin that we need forgiven and it's only in the name of Jesus. For he took on our blood-stained hands, didn't he? As blood poured out of his very hands as he nailed them to that cross. As the blood dripped out down his fingers and across his brow and down his chest to his very toes. Sin was marked all over Jesus. Yet it wasn't his. So that there would not be a single mark in us in eternity. For we will be made like new. In fact, totally new and pure. We will be as white as snow. But the flip side, instead of forgiveness and white and purity, there is destruction. Repentant sinners, God will redeem, but rebels he will destroy. We have that redemption available through our Lord Jesus. But what else is God going to do for us? This is the last thing, and really, really briefly, the refining of Zion. So verses 21 to 23, there's clearly no change of heart among the people. But then in verse 27 and, and, and onwards, or sorry, verse 26 it is, God is, is going to change this the Zion completely from the place like Sodom and a harlot. He's going to make a new city of righteousness and a faithful city. That there's a day where there's a city going to be utterly transformed. Where there's going to be no red hands, but only people dressed in white. A day that is coming where there is change. The Lord will act. Jerusalem will not be able to transform themselves. We cannot transform ourselves, but the Lord will act. For God is not looking to destroy, as he did Sodom, but he's seeking to restore Jerusalem, isn't he? Verse 27, Zion will be redeemed. And those in her who repent by righteousness. There's going to be a city. There's going to be no more injustice. There's going to be no more people vulnerable. But only people who are righteous. Zion is going to be restored. God's holy people are going to live into a holy city. And meanwhile, Zion is going to be purged or, or sanctified as well. That There's going to be a refining as the people begin to repent. Verse 25, God's going to remove the bad and keep the good. God will redeem his people. In a way that continues to show his holiness. With this eternal hope of a Zion that will be restored. God will remove sin. Either through Jesus or he will judge it. And he will purify us by his grace. And as Isaiah ends. And there's a little hint here. There will be a new city for God's holy people. Because God has made it that way. And made us that way. How? Because Isaiah, the Lord is salvation 
For Jesus takes our sin. His blood was poured out red so that we would be washed clean and white. And is our heart not glad this evening? That although we are guilty sinners, we have been washed white as snow. So let's sing to God's praise. Before we come to the table, there's only about two songs we certainly have to sing after that tonight. We're going to stand and sing together. Jesus paid it all.